Radioland, Podcast Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Medea Ocher, Managing Editor of LARB, and Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor there. Hi, Kate. Hello, Kate. Hello. So who do we have on the show this week? Today we have Laura Poitras, the director of Risk, a new film about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that is out in theaters this week. She was the very celebrated director of Citizen Four, which came out a few years ago and won an Academy Award. For Best Documentary, yes. Right. So Risk, uh, like we said, covers Julian Assange and WikiLeaks from approximately 2010 to 2017, right up to the contemporary moment. It's a fantastic documentary. Very, very interesting and really gets at the kind of cloistered life, the anxiety, the paranoia for Julian Assange. Excellent documentary. And Julian Assange to me has always seemed like such a shadowy figure and so inaccessible. And Laura has managed, like she managed with Snowden, with Citizen Four, she was in with Snowden in this hotel room for days. She manages a similar amount of access to a person who has always seemed inaccessible and who is so politically important right now. And so it was a very interesting and revealing film to watch. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot as well. So let's listen to the interview. Kate Wolf, and we're here with Laura Poitras today. Laura Poitras is a filmmaker, journalist, and artist. Her film, Citizen Four, the third installment of her post-9-11 trilogy, won an Academy Award for Best Documentary, along with awards from the British Film Academy, Independent Spirit Awards, and the Directors Guild of America, among others. Part one of the trilogy, My Country, My Country, about the U.S. occupation of Iraq, was nominated for an Academy Award. Part two, The Oath, focused on Guantanamo and the War on Terror and was nominated for two Emmy Awards. Her new film, Risk, on Julian Assange, is opening in theaters on May 5th. Laura, thank you so much for being here. It's great to see you guys. So I was thinking maybe we could start by you telling us how this film came about. When did you meet Julian Assange and how open was he to having a documentary made about him? I first became interested in filming with Julian. It was right after the Collateral Murder video was published. I don't know if you all have seen that, but the helicopter shooting of Iraqis and two journalists. And that was published in the spring of 2010. And I reached out in that summer. It was before the other publications from the Manning release were published. And I just, I was really interested in what he was doing and how it was doing journalism that we hadn't seen in a long time regarding the United States and occupations. And so I reached out, but it was a long kind of correspondence. And And in the time that I was trying to get access, they were continuing to publish the war logs and then later the State Department cables. Then the U.S. government launched a massive investigation into them. So when I first met Julian, they were understandably very cautious because there was an ongoing investigation. And at that point, I was also on a watch list as a result of my reporting. So there was definitely some negotiation Uh to get access. And so to answer your question, I began filming in 2011. 
So, I mean, obviously 2011 to now it's 2017, and you actually do a lot of work towards the end of the film to kind of bring us almost up to right this very moment, right? Can you talk about how your experience both with the documentary itself and with your subjects changed over, you know, seven years? It changed a lot, and so it's a tough thing to put into, you know, sort of simple terms, but I think for me maybe the biggest change was when I began filming with Julian and WikiLeaks, I was there as a documentary observer watching them publish very sensitive information and navigate the really complex risks that you have to sure. do when you're confronted with that. And that was something I was kind of watching from the outside. And then in the middle of shooting is when I started receiving emails from an anonymous source who turned out later, I learned was Edward Snowden. And then I was kind of thrust into sort of doing some of the similar types of journalism that WikiLeaks did. And then that created sort of new dynamics. My first thought when I started receiving these emails from anonymous source, I thought, could this be like some FBI entrapment? They're Mm. trying to get Julian. They also don't like me. I'm on a watch list. So they're going to go through me, pretend to be a source, and I'm going to set up Julian and they're going to bring us all down. I mean, that was kind (laughs) of my first thought. And so I was very compartmentalized. And that was something in a way I learned from Julian is this idea that you sort of need to know to protect sources and to use secure communication. So I didn't tell Julian that I was communicating with the source. And then that kind of created some divisions, I guess you would say, and complications in terms of my relationship. Yeah, the choices that I made that he wasn't, didn't necessarily support. And we got more complicated, I guess. Can you actually talk about the anxiety actually plays a huge role in this film, right? There's like two particular moments. One is when you're talking, actually, there's two moments when you're talking about anxiety dreams that you actually have while filming. And then the other one, which was absolutely chilling for me, is when you return to your home and you find, I believe it's the door is ajar. First of all, can you talk about what that felt like during that time? And also, was there ever any moment where you thought, you know what, I just can't do this. This is too hot. Mm-hmm. Um, the anxiety level was really high. I knew Julian, I mean, the, you know, the U.S. government, he's not paranoid when he says that there's a massive investigation into sure. the work that they do. It's very true. And I was also at that point filming with a whistleblower from the NSA, William Binney, a different whistleblower. Mm. I was like this, and I was already on a watch list. So like all these things combined made me pretty high level of sort of on alert. And then to have Snowden kind of come into my life on top of that. It was a couple years of pretty high anxiety. That's um, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and when I did come home and my apartment door was open, open after I'd been visiting Julian, I was like, what the, f-? you do question like, okay, is, could I have possibly left my door open? You know, and then my neighbor said that they thought they heard footsteps and it's just a, oh. kind of creepy, but I don't know, you know, to today, you know, what actually happened. But in terms of stepping away from the project because of any kind of anxiety, I, that didn't really, you know, what well, didn't factor in. I mean, I think when I started doing this reporting, post 9-11 reporting, I was put on a watch list and I had a choice then, like, am I going to keep doing the work or am I going to sort of let them intimidate me? And I decided that I would keep doing it. There's a point about halfway into the film where you basically tell the viewer that your opinion, maybe about Assange, I don't know if it extends to WikiLeaks, has changed or that you thought you could avoid the kind of contradictions in the story, but now you realize they're becoming that the story. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that moment for you in the process of filming. And I think you announce it to the viewer, but I also think it's becoming apparent in the film that it's a very complicated story. And just how did you from then on, you also then later, I don't know, before say that in the dream that you think Julian hates you, or Mm. I can't remember, something that you feel like he doesn't like you. I mean, that could be just a normal documentarian with subject relationship, but you kind of already referenced that. Just tell us about that dawning on you that the story was very complicated. 
Yeah, so first of all, I would say like the voiceover that you hear in the film or my production notes, it's sort of that are happening in the moment when I was filming, sort of processing, okay, what's happening? What am I working on? What's the story about? Which I do. And so I brought those into the film to sort of give a, a bit of insight into the process and maybe to help guide the viewer because I think that there are conflicting things to hold with this story. At least I certainly felt Many, that. Yeah. 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 And so I originally set out really eager to film their journalism and what they were doing, which I felt really strongly was important in terms of being adversarial, in terms of exposing what the U.S. government was doing in wars and its foreign policy. But by the time I got access, they were spending most of their time fighting extradition to Sweden regarding the alleged sexual assault allegations. So that became the sort of focus of what their work was, and then it becomes the focus of my film, sort of somewhat by accident. Like, my goal was to focus on their journalism and not on that sort of extradition battle and what was happening in the case in Sweden. So the film becomes more about, you know, these sort of larger ideals and maybe the kind of gender politics that emerge in the film. Right. And access is very much a part of the narrative of the movie. And so I was also wondering what did, sort of practically, what did your access look like? What was the access day to day in terms of your relationship with Julian, your relationship with the compound, and then eventually with him having escaped to the Ecuadorian mm -hmm. consul? Was that standard in terms of, you say that your process changed in the middle of taping because you were suddenly contacted by an anonymous source, you were suddenly involved in a very different way. Did that alter your feeling about what access was and how far you could access what was actually happening within this institution? Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting question, and it evolved over time. There was a time when I was being stopped at the border and that I left my raw footage. I left with them while I was shooting, and that was because I didn't want it to be confiscated at the border, and then I received it back for editing. I mean, and Julian and the organization, they're, you know, they're very careful in terms of what what they would let me know what was happening and partly that was source protection reasons. So I kind of had this situation where I was not knowing what was happening next because I would only know like one step of the you know the next step which was actually exactly how Edward Snowden operated. It's like I will tell you one thing and then I'll tell you something else and then you'll you know at some point I received information from him and that's kind of like a you know a way to protect people's security. And so, for instance, when Julian sought political asylum, there's a scene in the film where he's driving to court. I thought we were going to court. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what I thought we were doing. Like, yeah. And I was in the backseat <laughs> filming, and I was like, okay, we're going to court. And I'm like, oh, guess what? We're not going to court. This is something, you know, I walked into a hotel room. I was like, oh, this is really not what I thought I was going to see. So wow. I was kind of experiencing the kind of journey, you know, one step at a time. Mm -hmm. How do you remain supple in those moments? I feel like you have to be incredibly flexible and able to like very quickly yeah. change and adapt to new circumstances. Yeah, I, that's an interesting question. I mean, I do a lot of my, I collaborate sometimes with filming, but I do a lot of my own filming. So it's like I'm carrying the camera and doing sound. Okay. So I yeah. definitely walk into a room and go, all right, okay, where's the light? Where's the best angle? How do I get this? And how do I approach this cinematically? Mm. And for instance, walking into the hotel room and the scene you see in the film where he's changing appearances, I was like, and nobody was talking because they were very worried that he could have been monitored. Nobody was telling me, you can film. I was like, okay, I'm in this room. They've let me in this room. How am I going to film this? And sort of responding. But I've been doing this work for long enough that that sort of becomes kind of 
second nature. And, you know, similar things like meeting Edward Snowden in the hotel room, my first thought was, oh, wow, it's a lot of white here. And that's like a challenging <laughs> thing for video. And you don't have time to say, like, could we get another hotel room maybe? Okay. And, you know, but, you know, my goal is when I am in an environment is how to approach it cinematically. Is that why some of your portrait shots are incredibly tight? I mean, almost to the point of being claustrophobic. And I never thought about that as like a response to, in fact, like the shifting background situations that you were dealing with. I don't think it's so much about that. I mean, I think I like close-ups, you know, okay. it's just, it's uh, cinematically, I like them. I like reaction shots also a lot. But yeah, you do have to sort of like be fast on your feet to capture things, certain things. I was wondering if we could maybe go back just to talking a little bit about gender in the film and your experience being in these communities of hackers and people who are really technically skilled. And in this film, as you mentioned, there's the sexual assault allegations of towards Assange come up, but then there's a second tier where someone else, Jacob Applebaum, who's in the film, who's a very charismatic developer and activist, is also accused towards the end, or it's revealed towards the end that he's been accused. It's an interesting window into this community that you think as being so revolutionary, but then I was wondering if you found that sexism is just still present there as it is in any community, or how have you had a harder time being a woman, filming, discussing these issues with men who seem very sure of themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a major sort of sub-theme in the film. And, you know, I'm just making the film public, so I'll find out a bit in terms of what, you know, (laughs) what kind of backlash there might be directed towards me, which, but, you know, I definitely felt that when the allegations came out around Jacob Applebaum that I needed to address them in the film. And that's sort of why I changed the film after it originally premiered. And... You know, I mean, I think sort of sexism and abuse of power that exists within the hacker community, and you, you see that in the scene in the film where they're processing it. Like, how does this stuff get enabled? How does it persist? Why didn't it get dealt with? But it's kind of a, you know, it's an old story, right? Right. You, know, you have it in political movements where you have ideals that are in contradiction to sort of interpersonal relationships and often focus around gender. And so I guess I felt it was really important, or I think it's important for us to like question that, like, okay, if we're going to have political movements in our political movements, how can we make sure that they're based on, you know, equality? And And there's so many subtle moments in the film where you see, you know, Julian Assange kind of asking some woman what's for dinner and her applying. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which the power structure reveals itself subtly or with Lady Gaga even. That was such a funny scene. But yeah, it's definitely a subtle. I mean, and the reason it's in the film is because it's truthful. But secondly, I want it to be productive. Like, I actually want to say, like, how can we do better in these kinds of political movements where we're, you know, not enabling behavior that is sexist, misogynistic, or abusive. Right. And I wonder, just because it seems like in the film, Julian Assange's aim is not necessarily an interpersonal kind of revolution. It's so much larger. He talks about kind of this globalist or having a more global reach as opposed to a local reach. And I wondered, from your reporting and working with him and documenting him, what is the ultimate aim of WikiLeaks? I'm curious what you think is the takeaway from the film. I mean, I'm not totally sure. I mean, I would say, I guess, transparency, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't know how much is edited, like how much mm-hmm. is withheld of information that's gotten. So it's hard to know as an outsider 
right. how it and works. So there's a scene where he's speaking publicly. It's early and sort of in the first act of the film where it sort of sets up more the, their ideology, where he talks about the importance of like information for global civilization. Like I think he believes that too much information is being withheld from citizens and that there are these large, powerful institutions such as governments, such as news agencies, intelligence agencies, etc., and that the more of that information that can be available to the public that it contributes to society and civilization. It's a big, and it's a very consistent ideology of his. I mean, I think what's interesting to see right now is how he's being kind of filtered through this sort of political lens, where he's been pretty consistent. Like, if you look at his manifestos and his statements when he started WikiLeaks in 2006, they're very consistent to today. I mean, he's interested in publishing information from secretive organizations that have power over citizens. It's not so much personal information, but institutions. And that's what he you know, believes in. And it's actually a mission that I, you know, I have a a lot of, you know, affinity for. I think that a lot of his publishing has been absolutely in the public interest and has given insight into how power works. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. have Abdella Taya back in the studio. Abdella Taya is the author of Another Morocco, which is coming out from Simeotech very soon. And he has a book recommendation for us. What's your book recommendation? It's uh, a book called Continental Drift, written by the famous Russell Banks. Uh-huh. And he published it in the beginning of the 80s. And it was just retranslated into French, uh, I think, five months ago. And it's a book really that spoke to me so much. And I think it's about what is going on today in the world, all these people moving and these refugees. And it's about an American white man in the north of America that he feels that his life is not satisfying with his wife and children. And he decides that he has to go somewhere else in order to become someone more successful. He goes to Miami. And at the same time, we, we see another woman and her nephew coming in Haiti and obliged to escape from Haiti in order to go to America. And in the whole book, some miracle happening. The two characters don't meet, but at the same time, they are pushed into each other, like the sky, God or Allah or maybe Russell Banks, (laughs) (laughs) putting them, pushing them into each other. And it's really, really great book that I recommend very, very, very strongly. Hmm, that sounds interesting. And do they, does he, yeah, yeah. There's, there's connection. There is, there is a big connection. There is a lot of sensuality, a lot of political mm. things, and a lot of things about uh, the idea of America. Oh, interesting. Okay, and so what's the book called again? Continental Drift by mm. Russell Banks. Oh, okay, that sounds really interesting. Thank you, Abdel, for coming back. Thank you very much. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. Now back to our interview with Laura Poitras, whose new film is Risk. There's an interesting moment at the very beginning of the movie where there's sort of, I mean, it's comical in a certain sense because they're calling Hillary Clinton. Um, and it's Julian Assange and editor at WikiLeaks, uh, Sarah Harrison, I think right, is her name. Yep. And they're calling, they're just picking up the phone and trying, trying to talk to Hillary. But at a certain point, they reach 
an official. And Julian, when Julian takes the phone, you see, I think it's at the very end of the scene, he sort of breaks, he breaks down, he begins to almost cry. And he's talking about the, the hunt and the persecution. Um, and he's talking, he's talking generally. He, I think he's saying in the abstract, one is hunted. <laughs> Though, of course, he's talking about himself. And you see that when he sort of, you see his face redden and he's, there's a tear. Um, and then by the end of the movie, it really feels like a different person, almost, that I, I can't imagine this man breaking down on, on camera in particular. Did you have a sense of, I mean, and, and there's that conversation with Lady Gaga where he says, my feelings don't matter. That's not what this is about. Right? I'm not a normal person. Don't talk to me about those things. But did you have a sense of, well, the, the feelings of that operation, which seems so uh, sort of impenetrable to me, and, and also maybe his his change as a person, because I'm sure it does change you to be hunted and persecuted, but also to, it seems to be very angry about, about that persecution. So, I mean, that's interesting series of questions. Sorry, I, you know, that, that's okay. <laughs> Many of them. Um, <laughs> you know, that scene, I mean, I think he was nervous in that moment, you know, he was talking out and, and he was nervous and he's talking about, you know, yeah, like being cornered and what does that, what does that mean? But he, he has an amazing ability, I think, to navigate extreme amounts of stress. I mean, he's, right. he's been poking sort of the, the U.S. government consistently. You know, today there was a massive release from the CIA. The CIA had created a way to create beacons within documents so to stop another whistleblower from, from taking information. So it's basically, and he published it with the source code. So if anyone were to release um, information to the press, that it would, it would phone home to, to CIA and then they'd be able to find it so they could track future leakers to, to, oh, wow. to prevent another Snowden or another mm. um, Chelsea Manning. He just published that today. You know, this is, you know, a week after the attorney general is, you know, threatened to, you know, go after him. And it, it's maybe three weeks after the director of the CIA has, you know, declared that they don't have protections under the First Amendment. So that's a huge amount of pressure for a human being to sort of take on. Yeah. And and so um, I, I think he certainly, I'm sure it affects him emotionally, but I think he has, you know, it's just a very, I, I don't know, a strong ability to not let that deter him from keep doing doing this work, yeah. Um, but I, yeah, but I do. You know, there's a change. I mean, he's been inside the embassy in London now for five years. That's a long time not to be have freedom of movement. That's you know, that's going to take a toll on anyone physically, emotionally. Yeah. Has your experience being surveyed, being on a watch list, changed substantially um, the way you conduct your life? whether online or are you, is it something that you want? It seems like such a Pandora's box. Like once you're aware of what's really going on, which I'm sure few Americans understand the, the depths of, of, of the sur of total surveillance. How does that, how do you go back to just walking down the street and, and, and being kind of out and about? It's hard to go back because once, I mean, we're dealing with intelligence agencies, so it's not like there's a due process there where you just, you know, you call them and go, oh, we're not interested in you anymore. I mean, I think once they're interested in you, they they don't stop being interested in you. But I think the question really ma depends on what is this particular threat level that um dealing with. So when I was being contacted by an anonymous source who turned out to be Edward Snowden, I went into like really locked down security mode. Like I wouldn't, I stopped, I moved apartments. I stopped turning my cell phone on inside my apartment. I mean, I was really trying to stay off the grid or, or to make it somewhat that it, it was hard to, to know where I was located. And then I would check email at a public on a public Wi-Fi when I was um, communicating with Snowden. So it was really extreme um, in terms of anonymizing my information and my communication with him because I was very aware that 
this person was putting their life in my hands. And so that's, if I'm making plans for coffee, I don't really use, <laughs> use, <laughs> use the same um, okay, level of security. Um, but so it, and you know, so it really depends. And then in general, um, you know, sort of people recommend in the security community that you shouldn't just use encryption and, and protect your communication when you really need it because it, it creates a, you know, a flashing light like, oh, she stopped using Tor and she stopped using encryption or she started and then it's like, okay, well, there's something interesting happening, so we should start paying attention. So it's it's also good to you know be using security tools um, often uh, for when you need them. But the, I think one of the um, learning um, experiences that I've had doing the Snowden reporting and also Julian being able to continue to publish while um, locked inside or trapped inside the, the embassy is that encryption works. Because if encryption didn't work, do you think he, you know, Julian would be able to do the work that he did, or that Snowden wouldn't have been? They wouldn't have caught on sooner um, mm-hmm. that I was in communication, given the fact that you know I'm on a watch list and Julian's also being watched. Right, and I wonder maybe just if you could talk a little bit about the election. And I, it seems to me that the state of surveillance has, I mean. Obama is a very different president than Trump in some ways, but there's still massive surveillance. So when you're tuned into that, I'm sure the elections might not seem as consequential as they would to other people. But have you had any thoughts post the Trump election about WikiLeaks or even just personally um, being a citizen now? Is that changed for you? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I would say in terms of Obama, he was very aggressive against the press, too, and, and came after a lot of whistleblowers and, and journalists. Um, and then also his, some of his foreign policy, you know, the the, the, the drone program. So I'm not, I've got no, um, uh, I'm not going to, you know, say right, that I course. support all yes, of his policies. Yes, yes. But, I mean, Trump is, you know, he's a nightmare. I mean, this is this is a man who has unabashed racist views and, you know, self-proclaimed predatory um, behavior towards women. Uh, you know, I mean, that's terrifying that, that half of our, you know, the, half of the people who voted chose this person. So I, I think it's very terrifying, our sort of current um, political landscape. And I'm very concerned for many, many communities. Um, he, he definitely campaigned on a platform to uh, attack the press. And he's been doing a lot to kind of create lots of misinformation that to, to sort of muddy the waters and which seems to be like the kind of things you do if you have a lot to hide which I think he does have a lot to do a lot to hide and, but in terms of WikiLeaks publishing around the election and publishing around the DNC leak and, and later the Podesta emails, that, that was very newsworthy information and it was information that most newsrooms also also published yeah. but it creates this sort of new dilemma so if we accept the intelligence community's um, assessment that it was a a Russian hack and that they used an intermediary to submit it to, to WikiLeaks. It raises this other question of a gaming, you know, gaming information, gaming elections and et cetera. But it, it and, and new questions for newsrooms because, you know, sources always have motivations and those motivations might not always be public interest, right? And so how to navigate that? Because I don't think newsrooms should all of a sudden start censoring or filtering information, you know, like if something is of the public interest, I think it should be published. And I don't believe that Julian and Wiki WikiLeaks had, for instance, the RNC emails and chose not to publish them. Like, I don't think they made that choice. Whether or not you know, the people who did the original hack made that choice, that's, you know, that's something that, um, you know, has been argued. But we don't have a lot of evidence to support that. So, I mean, it's a pretty complicated moment, right, where, you, th- you know, sort of truth, news, who's gaming who, is sort of everything sort of in shit, uh, you know, in flux. Right. And I think
think we're sort of just grappling with what that means. And I don't think that just applies to WikiLeaks. No. You know, I mean, I could be approached tomorrow by a source, receive information, believe it to be truthful, and believe it to be a public interest. And I might not know who that source is. So what do you do? Right. And I think that's just a bit of a new paradigm that we're having to grapple with. It, it also seems to me, I mean, this is one of the extremely complex ethical issues with this type of work, right, is that you're on the one hand, and I loved it, the opening of the film, I think uh, Julian talks about the difference between a kind of idealism or a, a kind of a strict adherence to a principle, right, and then a pragmatism. I think he uses either pragmatism or yeah. being practical. Yeah, he uses the phrase ruthlessly pragmatic. Being, right. Yeah. Okay. So that seems to, I mean, how do you negotiate that kind of thing? That is really difficult because on the one hand, you have the principle that you're adhering to and that you really believe in, but you also must deal with the concomitant effects of what you can and can't control about what happens. I mean, a perfect example of this is the scene in which he's calling Clinton's office and saying like, look, this wasn't intended by us to have these names unredacted, right? But now this is actually a problem, right? You know, so there's like a principle that, you follow and the principle might be good, but you also have these concomitant effects that can harm in otherwise innocent people, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I do think he's he's navigating those kinds of questions, like what are what, what is. I mean, I think that they were very concerned about what would happen with these with these disclosures if, sure, if people were hurt, and and so they. And I think from his perspective, I think he also. Yeah, he's he's navigating, and I don't always agree with his choices. Like, what is his what right. you know when he when he decides you know to sort of abandon one set of principles for a larger goal. I'm not sure that I always I'm on the same side with him. Laura, can you tell us about uh, a next project you might be doing, or anything, any plans that you might have? I mean, I honestly just finished editing uh, on on Sunday, so I'm going to probably spend uh, a bit of time um, uh, talking about this film and then. Bef- bef- before I talk about my next work. Uh, okay. Thank you so Thank much you, for coming. Thank you. Thank you. It's Thank a great you. film. We've been speaking with Laura Poitras. Her new film is Risk, and it's opening in theaters May 5th. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 